Hello, I'm Harry. And hello, I'm Rory, and you're listening to Games on Film. This is Games on Film, the podcast that celebrates video game movies. And this time around, we're doing an adaptation of a big name in the fighting video game scene. We are doing Tekken. Yes, that's right. Uh, We've covered Street Fighter. We've covered Mortal Kombat. We've covered DOA, Dead or Alive. uh, And we've enjoyed those films quite a lot, I would say. And I think Tekken, certainly as a fighting game franchise is one of the biggest out there. At least, I think there was a sort of time when the first games came out. I think it's synonymous with the PlayStation era, even though the games originated in the arcade, the first installment released in 1994. But I think it really, up until that point, Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat had very much been the leading lights of fighting game franchises. And even though there had been other 3D fighting games sort of around the time of Tekken, such as Virtua Fighter, I think Tekken was definitely the one which really pushed 3D fighting games into the mainstream to the point that even Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat had, were forced to do 3D versions of traditionally 2D fighting games, which didn't quite work out as well as uh, Tekken managed. Yeah, there was a time before Tekken and a time after Tekken. And yes, people will say that Virtua Fighter was the first and things like that. But I always felt Virtua Fighter was more of a more of a tech demo, it seemed to me, as an outsider. And yes, I'm sure we'll have a lot of listeners arguing to the blue in the face that wasn't quite the case. But just like how, you know, Wolfenstein or Doom weren't necessarily the first of their respective genres, I think where Tekken went, others followed. Um, I'm also very amused by how it sounded like you said they were farting games <laughs> over my headphones <laughs> which uh, opens up a whole new opportunity a whole new gaming genre i'd like to explore yeah i i, I think uh, apologies if that's the case because we are still doing remote recordings and while you might be listening at home and it sounds great we're kind of communicating through a slightly dodgy internet connection <laughs> But luckily, we can fart as much as we want, and we can't smell each other's farts, unless yours is particularly powerful. Let's hope not. I am very much a Tekken version. In fact, I think I've watched you play it once on PlayStation at a friend's house, but I really knew nothing about Tekken. I didn't even know Tekken means Iron Fist in Japanese, Mm -hmm. and apparently... Tekken, Tekken slash Iron Fist was an alternative title to the classic Bruce Lee movie, Fist of Fury. So that was quite amusing. There has been a technically a Tekken movie <laughs> before this one. Yeah, it was a little bit hard. We're having to communicate to pinpoint exactly which Tekken movie we were going to be talking about. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, focusing on which is the correct Tekken film that we're going to be talking about today. And my criteria was, it's the one with Luke Goss in it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. 
I mean, there should be a whole section in the DVD store if they still existed where you could rent just Luke Goss's oeuvre. Yeah. You, of course, Rory, were a huge fan of Bross back in the day, of which, if you didn't know, boys and girls, Bross was made up of Luke Goss and his brother, I forgot, Liam Goss? (laughs) (laughs) It's not Oasis. Matt, right? Okay. And um, there was a third one who wasn't a Bross or a brother. Yes, when I was about three years old, I was into Bross because I liked the song When Will I Be Famous? And in my Mm -hmm. stocking I got from Father Christmas, I got a Bross postcard. That wasn't the only thing. It wasn't like a lump of coal (laughs) and a Bross postcard. Um, But yeah, I, I I enjoyed When Will I Be Famous when I was like three or four years old. And then I was all about Yaz with The Only Way Is Up. So, you know... I was a very fickle, pop-loving toddler. Mm. To my knowledge, I don't think Yaz has been in any movies. No. I don't think. Although apparently my favourite song when I was even smaller was 19 by Paul Hardcastle, because the road on which we lived in was number 19, was our house. Uh, Although, of course, Mm -hmm. if you know the song, the lyrics are like, the average age of a soldier in Vietnam was, no, 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 19. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, you learnt a lot about Vietnam as well. Yeah, I just I just like the repetition of the number 19. Yeah, Luke Goss, uh, he portrays a character in, in this. <laughs> Obviously, it'd be funny if he didn't portray any character. He's just, hey, is that Luke Goss? Yeah. Well, it could be one of those <laughs> movies where suddenly just, oh, it's Smash Mouth, you know, how they appear at the end of Rat Race. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, aside from Bross, he has uh, been acting... I mean, mainly um, he came to people's attention through the works of Guillermo del Toro uh, being cast in Blade Mm. 2 and Hellboy 2. And then since then, he's become sort of like the DTV Jason Statham. He replaced Jason Statham as the character of Frankenstein in the Death Race sequel spun off from Mm -hmm. the Paul W.S. Anderson movie. He was also in a film which I had to watch during my time as an intern at a film distribution company um, in a film called Cold and Dark, where I think he plays Detective Inspector Dark. And it's like a weird, supernatural, very low-budget, grim detective film in which Matt Lucas appears as an eccentric professor or something. (laughs) I have very... Interesting. I can't remember much of it apart from a lot of it being set in a big, like, industrial freezer. I think that's the cold in the title. (laughs) I see. It's uh, little seen, little known. Do you think they started with the title and worked back? Or (laughs) decided, oh, I've got the perfect title for this film, largely set in the fridge? (laughs) Sponsored by Smeg. (laughs) It should have just been called Smeg. (laughs) The movie. But yes, I, I guess he's been more in people's attention since uh, due to the documentary Bross After the Streaming Stops, which was maybe one of the most entertaining films of the past uh, five years. Yeah, there's a documentary on BBC following the two brothers on their comeback tour. And uh, Matt Goss is clearly has swum off in the, into the deep end. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not entirely... It's not a nasty documentary, but at one point, 
uh, Matt Goss in the space of like five seconds decides to war on anyone trying to ban the use of conkers in schoolyard fights. And Luke Goss is like, I think I can live with it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I ended up buying the DVD itself, which is a very rare occurrence. There was no shame that we didn't have much money. We had one toy that we loved more than anything, and that was a dart. We didn't have a dartboard that went along with it. We had a dart. We used to throw it up in the air as hard as we could, and we would stay as still as we could for as long before it landed. One time, it unfortunately, landed in Matt's ribs. In my rib. Which is a and dumb we, move. We ran, in, we ran into this. We ran in like this. There's him called the road. Granddad pulled the dart out, gave it back to me, and we carried on playing. And now you can't even fucking play Conkers in England. Can we start a petition in, in honour of Bros, please? Can we start an honour of how what? ridiculous it is that you got you can't play Conkers and if you do you gotta wear goggles. That is the biggest problem. Can't play Conkers in England. I can I can live with it. Do you think Tekken would have been improved if it was just the same like film and setting and big arena battle, but it just was Conkers instead of fistfights? We'll get to my opinions of this film soon, but I think almost anything would improve this film. <laughs> well, we're talking about Bros and with it, nostalgia, because I need to link back to the games themselves. Um, mm -hmm. I Yesterday, I decided to fire up the PlayStation Classic and play a bit of Tekken 3. And um, while you didn't play the Tekken games too much... I did borrow Tekken 3, I think I mentioned when I borrowed the PlayStation from my friend Dominic uh, to play Resident Evil 3 Nemesis, and I also borrowed Tekken 3, and I just remember Tekken 2 and 3 being the sort of ultimate PS1 party games. When you went around to someone's house and played PlayStation, there was, mm -hmm. you know, your FIFAs and Crash Team Racing, but I think Tekken was the quintessential multiplayer uh, party game for the PlayStation, because I think... While we were more of a Soul Calibur household in terms of the Namco 3D beat-em-ups, I think Tekken has the same thing in that it's quite easy to pick up. It's quite a, a friendly game in terms of uh, button mashing in order to pull off like holds and throws and moves. But also it's just like the graphics were very good. The way the fighting works, it's very satisfying. The kind of feel of the kind of punches and, and kicks. And I guess also because of the... PlayStation capabilities of having FMVs and stuff. Like a lot of people are like, oh, wow, look at the FMVs. I think that sums up the PlayStation in a nutshell. It should have been called PlayStation. Uh, wow, look at the FMVs. <laughs> <laughs> the fighting game itself is very much sort of punch kits. It's not like super magical special moves. But then, you know, included with all this stuff, you get these really weird characters like uh, giant bears, uh, kangaroos with boxing gloves lots of robots so it did have this kind of sense of humor and self-awareness running through it particularly with Tekken 3 it has this kind of Streets of Rage style side-scrolling beat-up mode called Tekken Force where if you need to replenish your health you pick up a big roast chicken and this announcer just goes chicken and there's Tekken Ball mode <laughs> where you have like a sort of volleyball fight uh, using your moves um, but running through it then, you also have this very strange, complicated plot, which I wasn't aware of. The only thing I really knew about it was what I kind of gleamed through those FMV cut sequences. 
just the game doesn't really explain itself. You have to really, I guess, look at the manual, but I didn't have the manual, so I didn't know. But I think the film takes the sort of central family relationship drama, which runs through all the games, and honours that in a certain respect, but doesn't go as far as the games do, because the main character in this film is Jin, who was introduced in Tekken 3, so I decided, oh, I'll play Tekken 3, and I'll do his, you know, story arcade mode. And the final cutscene for Jin, spoilers for Tekken 3, and maybe let's say spoilers for Tekken the movie from now as well, because that might feed into it. But your final boss is a giant ogre, and then you defeat the ogre, he picks up Heihachi, who is, I guess, the sort of signature character of Tekken, probably more because he has, like, fabulous spiky hair. And I guess that's why he's become the sort of, like, figure of Tekken and made appearances in Soul Calibur 2 as a guest character. Most recently, I think, as a skin for your Mii fighter in Super Smash Bros. Oh, I just had this picture of an old man's skin you slip on. <laughs> it sort of culminates in you defeating this ogre, then Jin is gunned down, he actually shoots him in the head, and then this is like your winning FMV, but then <laughs> Jin turns into a demon, sprouts bat wings, flies out of a temple ruins and into the night sky so it's like okay like up until that point it's just like fisty cuffs in a kind of your standard one-on-one fighting matches and then it's just like oh and then an ogre appears oh and then a devil appears and then you get shot in the head <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah as i said i didn't know anything about the plot of tekken and so when i finish this film and there's all the family the war of the family between Hihachi. Uh, Jin and oh, what's his name? The Kazuya. What's the Z guy? Kazuya. Hihachi Kazuya. Have you written it down? Just write down in I... big letters on whatever ahead. you're looking at. Kazuya Hihachi Jin, because it's going to make the next ninety minutes a lot more, <laughs> a lot easier for I... everyone. I've written it on my screen, but I need. I think I need to do it on a piece of paper. Let me just get a pen. <laughs> I thought I was doing really well. Hang on, keep recording. We're just going to go and get a pen. I'll be right back. Right. Right, here I am again. Hi, Hatchy. Jin is easy. And what's the third guy? Kazuya. K A Z U Y A. <laughs> okay. They are now written down right next to my computer. <clears throat> so, so, as I said, I had no idea about the plot, especially the family dynamics between Kazuya, Jin, and Hayachi. So, all this stuff gets uh, rolled out in the film. And, you know, to my surprise, especially as. Jin and Kazuya, who are meant to be father and son. Uh, the actors were born four years apart, so that's a big a point of interest. Yeah. But I, I ended up reading the plots of the series in Wikipedia, and I found it incredibly fascinating and engaging, and I wanted to learn more. So it's sort of... I can only imagine what a fan of the games would feel watching this plot unfold. I mean, there's a point where Jin's mum says to a jinn um your father 
is dead. That's all you need to know. And then I made a note saying he is definitely not dead. I have a feeling he's going to be in Tekken City. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a bit of a shame that this film doesn't have uh, bears or kangaroos with boxing gloves. I actually did not expect Yoshimitsu to appear, but he does with a sword in a fighting tournament, which up until that point had just been fists. But anyway, if I get anything from this, I would like to go back to the games, maybe get that PlayStation Mini and have a good old go. At Tekken 3. Shall we talk about the film then? Yes, let's. We are on host the Iron Fist tournament in Tekken City. Winning Iron Fist means power and prestige for Tekken. Means we win in the world. I know why I'm here. Where did you get this? Belonged to my mother. She was a Tekken fighter. I came here to kill Mishima. He's gonna pay for what he has done. Our viewers love him. It represents a street. Let's see what the street has taught him. You're tough, man. I used to watch you street fight. The hundred thousand dollars to whoever kills that kid. It's nothing. Just another amateur. Think you're gonna puke? I already did that. <laughs> You gotta get everyone as quick as you can. You're up, kid. Kill or be killed. I'd keep my head in the game if I were you. Be an asset detective. I'll never belong to Tetris. We'll see about that. The remainder of the tournament's fights will be to the death. In the end, you will fail. You're not just fighting for yourself anymore. You're fighting for all of us. Nice finish. So do you, do you have a video box to hand? I do. I've got a DVD in pristine condition. <laughs> And its uh, tagline is, survival is no game, because it knows it's a video game. That's true. And though it's very true, survival is not a game at all. I don't even want to joke about it. Yeah, don't joke about survival. No, not not during these times. Just don't joke. I don't know. I think that messaging should be printed on all video boxes. (laughs) Survival is not a game. So the back of the box... It says, prepare to fight, which, I mean, is that addressed to us? (laughs) It's a yet another message. Survival is no game. Prepare to fight. Women and children first. Go for the head. (laughs) Just trying to think of other words. I'm in in kind of an apocalyptic mood today because this is like the umpteenth film set post a nebulous apocalypse that we've watched in this podcast. So we have accidentally taught ourselves how to survive the catastrophe whatever the catastrophe is going to (laughs) be you do a small laugh after talking about the end of the world (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well you gotta look on the bright side huh Mm -hmm. based on one of the best-selling fighting games of all time 
Tekken is an all-out battle epic packed with jaw-dropping martial arts action like no other. In the year 2039, after wars destroy much of civilization as we know it, territories are no longer run by governments, but by corporations, the mightiest of which sponsors the King of Iron Fist tournament, or Tekken, in which fighters battle until one warrior is left standing. Jin, a rebellious street... Jin, a rebellious... <laughs> He's a rebellious street. An entire street takes part. <laughs> I want to see a fighting game between the residents of Coronation Street and EastEnders, um, which I know they don't live. They, they don't live in a place called EastEnders. <laughs> street Fighter as a name is misrepresentative of not actually having literal streets in a fight. It's true. Did it, so? Sorry. How does the box describe him? Jin, a rebellious teenage street fighter, enters the tournament in order to avenge the death of his mother that he blames upon the all-powerful head of Tekken. Jin knows that the only way to get close enough to kill him is to win the tournament, but in doing so, he begins to uncover his own past and expose a dark underbelly to Tekken that threatens the very existence of humanity. Really? Well, now I'm intrigued, and <laughs> I've seen the film. From the fight choreographer of the Transporter movies and featuring stars of MMA, prepare yourself to enter the ring and face some of the most visceral fight action ever seen. <laughs> You know what? I did no research on the MMA stars in this film, and I had no idea the fight choreography was done by the people who did transport a fight choreography, so I'm even more disappointed. Um, <laughs> I'm going to lay my cards on the table, I think. So I really didn't like this film. Um, I'm going to try and be positive throughout, though. I'm going to try and be up on this. I'm going to, you know... Every failure is an opportunity to learn, and I hope everyone learnt a lot making this film. <laughs> and so it is just a real hodgepodge of so much that we've already covered. But that's not in and of itself a problem. I can see lots of martial arts tournament movies, uh, nebulous you know, sort of cyberpunk-style corporations instead of uh, countries, all that sort of thing. As long as the fighting is fun to watch or the writing is good or the actors are charismatic or the dialogue is enjoyable and like 99% of everything I've just mentioned is, is really subpar. <laughs> so mm. um, I, there's, there's, there's little to recommend. The fighting especially, you know, I think the first fight is about 20 minutes in. The first proper fight is 20 minutes in. It starts with like a run and gun shootout, sort of parkour in the dark dark core for want of a better expression my favorite music genre <laughs> i mean the music throughout this opening sequence is somebody saying repeatedly one of us is going down which you know i'm sure the director's like do we have any songs which could sound kind of like a fighting game song and i've got just the song their music guy said but the first fight happens and i just went oh because you get to see like two moves before you have a smash cut to you know, the audience watching or it's just a shaky cam. There's hard, there's like literally no uh, long held shots of people fighting. So that was pretty disappointing. I think for a film which revolves around a fighting tournament, you've got to make sure that the fights are interesting or the fights are dynamic or well shot, and none of the fights really are that. 
I appreciate the fact that there is an attempt to use characters from the game and in a way honour their styles. For instance, one of the first matches in the main tournament proper uh, includes a fighter called Eddie Gordo, who's a character in the games, and his style is capoeira-influenced. And so when you see him in the film, yeah, he's doing capoeira moves. That's kind of cool. And that's about it. I appreciated the fact that just like a video game, when they're characters, because they randomly select who's going to fight, and they have little fighting stance screens, so it looks like a video game versus matchup screen. And even the fact that it's the same arena, the same stage, but they select a level, ancient ruins, and so they stick up pillars, or Japanese garden, and they <laughs> stick up maple trees. And it's like they reskin the whole stage in a matter of seconds, but it's like, well... I guess that's an attempt to make something slightly different. In a way, it makes more sense that a tournament would be set in one location because I'm thinking of things like Mortal Kombat and Dead or Alive where the fights can happen sort of anywhere and you think, who's like refereeing these? Who's watching these? And in this one, everyone goes to one place and watches these fights. But it actually, I only noticed right at the end that some of the dressing of the stages had been changing because the background is mostly the dark like audience who are watching the fight and the word Tekken in neon above and lots of swooping lights. So they, they each fight by, by and large looks the same, really. Yeah. And it just made me realise, again, that films like Dead or Alive, Mortal Kombat... They, they get they gain a lot by having different locations. It makes the fighting seem fresh. Of course, it helps that both those films I feel have better martial arts than what we get here. Yeah, and even the introduction of weapons, like with Yoshimitsu, and later on, even when the stakes are raised and it's literally fighting to the death and kill or be killed, it doesn't really change how the fights are shot or how it looks or raises the tension or excitement uh, any further. Like we keep cutting to Luke Goss um, saying things like, come on, kid. Yes. <laughs> and things like that. And I imagine if I just filmed like half an hour of him ablibbing things like, get yourself off the floor. You can do it. No. <laughs> just <laughs> spitballing. It's like, oh, not in the nuts. Be careful of his teeth. <laughs> like, oh, the nipple twist. Don't stick your finger in there, sort of thing. Well, I guess part of the blame is laid on the director, naturally, uh, who is Dwight H. Little, who I hadn't really heard of, but then you look at his resume and he seems to have um, done quite a bit and quite varied filmography. So I guess key works would include Halloween 4, Free Willy 2. Not the most classic sequels. No. Talking of other unclassic sequels, Anacondas. The sequel to Anaconda. <laughs> this is where we find the Anaconda Queen on a distant planet. <laughs> um, and then, like, Rapid Fire, which was a Brandon Lee movie, Marked for Death, a Steven Seagal movie. And more recently, he's done quite a lot of TV stuff. So he's done uh, directed episodes of The X-Files, 24, Arrow, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And he even did a video game and filmed the, v the FMVs for him called Ground Zero Texas. So that's, I guess, his previous video game's involvement. Do we know what the plot of Ground Zero Texas is? I don't know, actually. 
Can I just Google Ground Zero Texas because... Oh, it's from 1993, and it does seem to be a, a Sega CD video game. It, it just rather sounded like there was someone trying to tie 9-11 into Texas <laughs> somehow. Um, but no, it just seems to be like a generic action-y game. But I, I sort of appreciate like a director who's clearly done a lot of stuff and has made a career out of lots of different things and done multiple genres. I'm not saying he's necessarily good at what he does but i don't know looking back at his the phrase jack of all trades master of none pops yeah. in my mind yeah quite possibly but uh it turns out that early on in the film we encounter a couple of hackers and one of the hackers is played by jason james richter who was the kid in the free willy movies and was also the assistant director of this oh. film so i sort of feel like oh he sort of keeps it in the family in a way that's sort of nice that the director of free willy 2 decided to cast him in tekken you know several years later i have to admit that has raised my opinion of the film like a micro fraction because it does yeah. make me happy he didn't go off and live with the whales <laughs> but the writer of this film also has worked with dwight h little before this is alan b McElroy. so he was the writer of halloween 4 rapid fire and the aforementioned ground zero texas video game um, but Alan okay. B. McElroy has also been involved a lot with Todd McFarlane's Spawn. He wrote the Spawn movie, uh, the Wrong mm-hmm. Turn movie, which then spawned a bunch of sequels, the sort of backwards cannibals in the woods horror franchise. He's written an episode of mm-hmm. Star Trek Discovery, I think. And um, I think also he wrote the screenplay for Ballistic X vs. Sever which is a film we've toyed covering on the podcast because of its close association with the video game of the same title. So maybe we'll Mm. dig deeper into that uh, on a future episode. But yeah, I kind of thought this film was made by just a bunch of amateurs, and it turns out they're not, but that in a way makes me think of this film higher and lower at the same time so it sort of cancels itself out and makes it null and void yeah it's one of those curious things where if it was really bad filmmakers doing their best you'd be kind of impressed but if it's kind of like professional filmmakers not really pulling their weight then if you feel a little bit harsher more negative against it yeah the film follows Jin, who uh, is played by john fu who has also portrayed Ryu in a Street Fighter short film (laughs) and more recently played a version of Jackie Chan's character in the Rush Hour TV show, which was cancelled after one season. Yeah, I remember that coming out and me not watching it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like that American version of 40 Towers, which is very um, difficult to watch if you have a human soul. (laughs) But Jin, he's a plucky little rebel, and he basically seems to support himself by running anti-Tekken contraband, and uh, does so, as you mentioned, through his parkour skills. Uh, He meets these sort of hideout hackers and gives them this uh, metal orb, which is basically just to get them off the grid and... Onto, Onto the dark web. Basically. Yeah, yeah. But it sort of establishes the world quite early 
on, I think the DVD box here, it says 2039, but that's not explicitly said in the film. But it's this sort of wasteland slum area known as the Anvil, and the caption handily tells us we're in Anvil Sector 197742-C7-443, like that means anything to mm. us. Um, I kept thinking of that film, Anvil, the story of Anvil, which would have been a great subtitle to this <laughs> film. And not too dissimilar to Bross after the screaming stops that film either. There is some good dialogue in this little scene because we establish that this is obviously sometime in the future because Jin has no idea who the Beatles are. He says to his contact, what was that song you were listening to before? Like the Roaches or something? Which I thought was hilarious. Uh, it would have been funnier if the guy said, it was Papa Roach, man. <laughs> the loss of art, end of creative <laughs> thought. I, ha I have to say, though, when we're talking about setting the scene, setting the world, this film starts with a massive info dump and, again, a narrator telling us the lay of the land. And it just reminded me of things like Mortal Kombat, where we kind of learn about the tournament through a, a few smaller info dumps, but usually when, when a character is talking to another character, it's, it's not a narrator setting up the scene. I just think it's more deftly handled when it's spoken by characters. I think, yes, the narration is maybe a bit of a, an exposition dump, but I think the rest of the world building is a bit more organic. I like when they say things like global dollars, and then later on they're doing a deal, and it's, do you want 200 Tekken Red or 100 Global Blue? And... Yes, that was a nice bit of world building. And the way they talk about rationing protein squares made me just think of uh, Kellogg's Rice Krispie Squares. But, um, <laughs> you know, later on... When they're doing this sort of transaction, Jin is like bargaining for chocolate and coffee and oranges like he's dealing, like he's trying to buy drugs off a dealer in a bar. So... Yeah, the coffee's almost as expensive as it is in London. <laughs> this is Colombian, the real shit. Um, mm. So, I, I don't know, I recently watched Elita Battle Angel and oh, yeah. I was getting some Elita vibes off this even to the point where Jin and meets up with his girlfriend, uh, question mark, because I guess they're not like strictly um, exclusive <laughs> later on. Yeah, her, she has she has like a couple of scenes. They start to have sex, which is intercut with like violence or an assault happening on the district. And I just thought this film's aimed at psychopaths <laughs> or lunatics. It was just like. And then, yes, his his girlfriend kind of disappears for the whole film. And then she appears like she's the second to last shot where she's looking at the crowd, looking at our victorious Jin. Like she's she's wanting to remind us, the audience, that she's she was in the film. Yeah. It made me really think ill of Jin because the whole time he starts looking at the bum and the toes of Christy. He's only looking at the toes because he's admiring her stance. Yeah. And like her ass's stance. <laughs> at least when she notices him taking a good look at it, she does say, staring at my ass is a good way to get yours kicked. That's an all right line. I mean, Kara and Jin share some of the worst dialogue. Like um, Kara says, where you've been? And Jin goes, been around. And then she goes, no one understands how you're alive? Been lucky. You're about to get lucky. 
During that whole bit when Kara and Jin are meeting up for some illicit post-curfew tryst, it was just the thing that he brings her chocolate and in Alita Battle Angel, this uh, new boy on the scene gives her chocolate for the first time. And she's like, oh, wow, wow, what is this? This is my favorite food. And just the whole city slum setting and everything. I just was getting Alita vibes from this and the whole tournament and in Alita, it's all this murder ball game and stuff, so. Where have you been? Been around. What is it? Chocolate. Are you serious? (laughs) Sounds like I've been replaced. (laughs) And here you go. Thank you. Hello, are you ready? Try this. Trust me. It's chocolate. Mm. That is so great. It's good, right? I have a favorite food now. <laughs> this is my favorite food. Well, I wouldn't call it that. I would. We have done, I counted, we have done like eight podcasts which are like loosely set in dystopian city states we've done lawnmower man 2 uh, ready player one uh, double dragon uh, super mario brothers well, i'm talking about manhattan here not um dino hatton <laughs> uh, gamer final fantasy the spirits within tron and then tekken uh, and that was actually my top 10 so tekken is right at the bottom of dystopias I kind of care to to be in, either as an audience member or someone who lives there. I would rather live in Final Fantasy's world where ghosts can tear your soul out at any given moment. Bizarrely, I've got Lauren Marrowman 2 at number one because that more or less seems like the modern world today. Because I think I think like the top three, Lauren Marrowman 2, Ready Player One, Double Dragon, they go into the top three because at the end like the villain gets arrested so there's some sense of law and order <laughs> but um everything else is a, a little bit of a free for all i think this is the only time that lawnmower man 2 beyond cyberspace would be the top of anyone's chart i can't remember the name of the main human hero in that human film hero. <laughs> i mean i know that i know that the kids in that film had like a dog but i wouldn't class them as a hero <laughs> Yeah, I had to establish that because the dog is definitely the hero of the piece. Um, but what I mean to say, I would be Pier- the Pierce Brosnan replacement dude living in the desert in that universe. Okay. Talking about this this world, Anvil, is there anything beyond Anvil? Is this Mega City 1 with a cursed earth? Because all the flashback Jin has of training with his mum are in these like leafy, beautiful place. Why would you move away? This also is a lot like Elita because they're stuck in the city and they want to get to this uh, city in the sky directly above them. And when Jin is talking to his mum, she's talking about how uh, the world burned because people got greedy and you don't want to go to the Tekken world and, and stuff. But yeah, clearly they were somewhere else doing their training. Mm. Maybe it's just like you just get on a bus and get out of a city and it's like, really easy to just go to the woods if you want to do you remember when we went to center parks oh yeah (laughs) it was wonderful (laughs) should we talk a bit about Jin's mum then yeah so Jin's mum Jun and she is a character in the games as well and the way 
Jin's lineage and how that plays into that is definitely part of the games too in terms of the lore and how they're involved with the Mishima family etc but uh, she's upset with him wasting his talent on running anti-Tekken stuff and at the same time doesn't want him to get involved with Tekken but sort of turns out uh, she's been involved with Tekken in the past herself I mean so she ends up dying so i mean there's dynamic between the two for want of a better expression villains you got Hatchi, who's um positioned as the big bad but his son kazuya is always chomping at the bit to take over the corporation because again corporations rule the world i think it is tekken is the big corporation isn't it yeah it's the biggest of the biggest there's like a Russian one, there's like Dunder Mifflin is one, and he wants to take over. And I, again, I have no idea. I really don't know how a tournament is meant to be the the way they maintain control of the masses. There's maybe a bit of bread and circuses, but it just seems like a really weird thing to be doing instead of like stock markets and stuff. The... the... The way it seems in the games is that they keep on hosting these tournaments in order to lure another Mishima family member out of hiding or something so they can throw them off a cliff or into a volcano again. Um, Mm -hmm. And it seems that Kazuya, he's obsessed with taking over Tekken. And when he's given the control of the security known as the Jackhammers, or Jacks for short, which are sort of inspired by the game. You have these Jack characters who are robots. Mm -hmm. I don't think these guys are robots, but it's always nice when we do these future dystopia movies. What are the super soldiers going to look like this time? Here, the Jacks are wearing kendo masks. Imagine living in a world where the police was militarized. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, These ones are wearing kendo masks. But, you know, how, like, it depends. Like, sometimes they'll be wearing motorcycle helmets or sometimes they'll be wearing, you know, leather trench coats. Although you do have, like, guards later on in these leather trench coats that just look like your dad having a midlife crisis. (laughs) They're just, like, really sort of, like, stodgy, dumpy-looking men with dark glasses. And it's very easy for these ultimate fighting champions to take them out, even without guns. But yes, the kendo mask uh, jackhammer people, they do look like they just went to a sporting goods store. They look like uh, when Genghis Khan went to the mall in big in um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the way the plot really gets kicked off is that Jin doesn't want to do you know, raise his head above the parapet. He doesn't want to join any sort of resistance against the power he doesn't want to fight the power um but when his mum is killed that's what sets him off and his mum is killed by kazuya sort of casually saying oh destroy the entire block because he's told that there are let me just find the line actually i wrote it down one of the jackhammers comes up to him and says we've located the insurgents in sector nine and kazuya says just burn the whole building down and the jackhammer says, but some of our men are inside. And he goes, I don't care. I just think if the jackhammers have located insurgents, maybe tell those jackhammers to kill those insurgents rather than destroying the whole building. I'm just saying that Kazuma's not very good at forward planning. 
he's only just recently gotten hold of control of the jackhammers. So, you know, he's learning on the job. Um, but clearly he's just been waiting <laughs> to assume control of the official Tekken security forces so that he can eventually stage a coup against his his dad. Because I, I, there's this funny bit where later on, in order to kind of soothe his soul, Kazuya is basically spilling his greedy guts um, to anyone who listens. He's having a kind of set sesh with the Williams sisters, not Serena and Venus, um, Anna and Nina Williams. <laughs> Um, but it's funny because he's in this I appreciated kind of... sex sesh. <laughs> That's a very interesting turn of phrase. It's funny because he's got this luxury pad, like very classy, but then he's just got this kind of sexy girly poster stuck on the wall in the background, which completely <laughs> like destroys the sort of classy factor. I think this film is pretty obsessed with sex, actually. And this was just weird because everyone knows people playing video games aren't interested in sex because they never get any. <laughs> So when Jin's mum is killed, she effectively becomes like Obi-Wan Kenobi speaking to our protagonists throughout the film. And she never shuts up at all. It made me really want to ask you whether in the games does does like your mum speak to you throughout? Because it certainly makes it seem like that. She gives him advice and tips in the fight itself. And it made me think about how it would be good if in a video game you had like a mum meter which would get charged progressively as you get beaten and then you could activate like your final smash or something when it's at its maximum level. Yeah, there are a lot of flashbacks and certainly in the matches when Jin is fighting, he'll flash back to a thing that his mum said which speaks very specifically about the fight he's in at the moment. Like when he's fighting Yoshimitsu... Mm. He flashbacks to a point where his mum said something about destroying the mask. And then, like, in the fight, he literally destroys Yoshimitsu's mask. And I sort of thought, oh, maybe Jun knows this because it turns out later on that she was a previous Tekken fighter. And maybe she just, like, knows these fighters because she's fought against them in tournaments. But I think that's maybe given this too much benefit. And then later on, we get flashbacks for stuff which happened only minutes earlier in the movie. It's just, even the film, in a way, starts with a flashback because over the narration, we have Jin running and then it flashes forward to Jin just about to fight, I think, Brian Fury. And then it flashes back to five days earlier. So we get this kind of... Oh, yeah. And then there's like a post credit scene, which is like a flashback as well. I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on with the time frame of this movie and it's very irritating also the mum's advice is sometimes obviously wrong <laughs> because she i think in one of his uh, opening fights his mum flashback says you if you can still breathe you can still fight you're only beaten when you decide and so sort of like, I, I i kind of disagree with this he's <laughs> fighting a chap called martial law what, what if martial law's mum said exactly the same thing would they just keep fighting until the end of time or until uh, one of them holds their breath. Excuse me, referee. <laughs> um, I believe that I'm not defeated if I'm still breathing. So <laughs> that's um, that's a good point. Like, I cannot be serious. I am not defeated. It's so weird. But again, like it reminded me of the Sphinx from Mystery Men. Like I, I, I kind of imagine the mum saying, 
You must eat your greens or your greens will eat you. <laughs> so Jin decides to enter Tekken against his dead mother's advice in order to seek revenge against Heihachi Mishima, who we haven't mentioned, but he's the figurehead of Tekken. And he is played, of course, by the monumental Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa, a.k.a. Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat. Playing Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat, effectively. <laughs> well, a sort of slightly more benevolent version. Like, we think he's the big mm. bad, and it sort of reveals that Kazuya is actually the big bad. And while Heihachi is still not great, I mean, he sort of argues later on that Tekken is peace, Tekken is control and you know that doesn't satisfy anyone yeah he is definitely one of the figureheads of this conglomerate of big businesses yeah there's like video of him saying phrases like honor through discipline peace through grace strength through order and he's just talking about basically how great tekken is because yeah i mean you would if you were the ceo of tekken it's not like richard branson is just like yeah virgin train's not so good <laughs> <laughs> So Jin wants to seek revenge on those he holds responsible for the death of his mother and so decides to enter a wildcard qualifying round against Martial Law, who from the video games is kind of a Bruce Lee-esque rip-off fighter. And there's mm -hmm. mention as well that Martial Law KO'd Paul Phoenix in 28 seconds and that's another name drop of a Tekken fighter. But leading the qualifying entry is Luke Goss, as Steve Fox, mm -hmm. who doesn't think very much of the people signing up and saying, you're all a bunch of wankers. Because if you're a Brit in an American movie, you have to say wanker as much as possible, because that's why well, you know he's British. It isn't just Jin who's invited to um, to this tournament. There's a, like another guy in the crowd who's brought in, who I recognise, like he's a big, bald dude with a beard. And I looked him up, he's called Randall Reader. And he's played heavies in things like 21 Jump Street, like a biker heavy. He's been mm -hmm. in like Deadpool as well. But he's uh, listed in the cast, in the credits, as Anvil Open Called Scared Man, <laughs> which I quite enjoyed. He's not scared, I think. I mean, he's not like whimpering. He's just like the equivalent of fuck this. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting out of here. Mm. 
But yeah, so we have our first matchup sort of cage fight thing and Jin wins because he does a flashback at the right moment. I mean, martial law does say you need to learn some respect and then spits at Jin in a very disrespectful way. <laughs> the Mishimas are impressed because martial law has apparently never been beaten by an amateur and Kazuya is very sort of obsessed with the viewing figures. They're up. It's good for business. Uh, later on, he sort of is so impressed by the viewing figures and we see a visual representation which kind of looks like one of those uh, bar charts from Brass Eye or something. It's just a bunch of <laughs> 3D bars which say medium and then they go up and it says high. And it's just like, okay, I guess he can interpret that data. The thing is, he says as he sees these graphics, he says the ratings are going through the roof and I took those bars to to be penetrating the roof of the little box they're in. Because that's what <laughs> happens. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, I mean, it's still meaningless. I'm just still... I'm really confused by how this world operates and what the stakes are for like the company. Because um, Hayachi does say things like winning here means we win the world. And I'm just thinking, what does... What does Tekken lose? I mean, um, Jin is effectively Tekken's representative because he won this qualifier. Is that right? Well, I, I, no, I mean, he's, he doesn't signed up by Tekken because Steve takes him on as his ward in a way by sponsoring him because all the other companies have their own fighters and this is just a wild card qualifying entry. So who's Tekken's fighter? Uh... And like they keep calling Jin the people's choice when he wasn't chosen, he won a fight. But he's the people's choice in the sense that he is someone who has been chosen from the people. It seems rather nebulous. It's like open to interpretation. I guess it's like when Andy Murray wins Wimbledon, he became British, not Scottish, like when he lost. So <laughs> it's it's just very weird. It's politics, baby. I think this highlights how films are not about the plot or the sort of setting it's about the characters and we've kind of talked we've kind of skirted around Jin but I find just Jin just a personality vacuum and I think literally every single character is is, is completely fucking dull apart from I found Hihachi and I don't know if that's because of the actor because like when when he first appears, I did think he was going to be like Shang Tsung, but he does have a bit of nuance. And when I first saw his crazy haircut and beard, and he is the only guy who looks as bonkers and that much like in the video games, I didn't like his look. But as we spent more time with him and got into his face, got a lot closer, I was like, actually, I really enjoy him. He spends some of this film just watching TV, like watching the Tekken tournament. And I really felt like I could happily watch Hihachi watch TV for 90 minutes like a supervillain edition of Gogglebox. Hmm. I can't believe people still watch Naked Attraction. No, don't change the channel. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, rounding off our high hatchy talk, the, the, the moment comes, as it always must in these sort of family dramas, where the son stages a coup and takes over and asks one of the jackhammers to go out and execute Hihachi. And... We don't see him get killed, but there's an explosion. And I just thought, in this sort of a film, where it has a definitive end, they're not going to try and 
cheat the audience but he absolutely does survive in the most weird just sloppily edited post title sequence because Hayachi's on his knees with a gun in his face and then we cut in the middle of the film but at the end of the film he he is a total badass he, he goes I am Hayachi Mishima I am Tekken totally badass and then the soldier just puts his gun down no, 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 no. So in the film proper, he says, I am Mishima Heihachi, I am Tekken. And then it cuts, and then you assume he's dead, explosion. At the end credits, it repeats that, and he says, I am Mishima Heihachi, I am Tekken. And then you will obey, and the guard drops his gun. In the post credit sequence, before we have Heihachi's not dying scene, we have this weird shot of Kazuma just walking around a bit. Did you get that in your, in your copy you're watching? Yeah, he just kind of stumbles about and then, like, according to Wikipedia, it's him in a prison cell and he's, like, alive or whatever. But it kind of just looks like a flashback to some other part of the film. It's just very strangely put together. Like, they were just trying to use the footage they had because they'd forgotten to include a stinger at the end. I mean, since we're talking about the ending, we have an ending. Jin is victorious. He's somehow... I guess, I mean, he's victorious, which means he is the CEO of Tekken, I suppose, because all the fascist cops who killed loads of innocent people are now in his, under his command. <laughs> and uh, he's cool with that, obviously. And then there's like a voiceover, I think it's from Christie, who says, Yeah. But freedom comes and goes, and the world had no idea or warning that the true legacy of Tekken was just beginning. And then we get credits, and we're like, what it's like a real downer <laughs> it's like imagine if like a voiceover at the end of the return of the jedi where they're in the ewok village and everyone's partying and then the voiceover says fyi palpatine's not dead <laughs> <laughs> and you know we knew we know that's the case now i guess that's trying to say something to the games and part of Jin's character is that while in say the Tekken 3, Jin is like the main protagonist because of the Mishima bloodline that he carries with him. There's this whole thing in the games about the devil gene. Oh, yes. I guess in the film, it's sort of like later on when Kazuya and Jin actually fight, it's like, oh, it's in your blood. And when Jin has his first fight and has this sort of flashback, he goes into this rage and fury and starts like punching his opponent to a bloody pulp. So I guess it's sort of like suggesting that, oh, Jin has this sort of like inner fury and rage which powers him. And one of the other fighters, Raven, later on says, anger doesn't fuel the fighter's soul. It incinerates it. And you're not just fighting for yourself anymore. You're fighting for all of us. And so mm. I guess it's trying to do this sort of inner turmoil, maybe because of where I come from. I also have like evil inside me. But... That doesn't really come across in the performance. Yeah, it doesn't come across. Like, I just got the impression that he's got a bit of the temper, not that he has the devil inside him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I imagine the devil to be in the embodiment of, like, rage and fury and pain and suffering, not being kind of a bit grumpy. Because yeah. that's kind of how Jin is throughout the whole film. I guess the only part where Jin sort of comes alive is when, like, him and Christy go out on the town outside of curfew and go to a bar and grind on the dance floor. 
Yeah, it's like the most... I, I wrote here the most awkward dance sequence since The Matrix Reloaded. Although I did appreciate the Tekken dancers at the start of the fight, kind of like the running man dances <laughs> that we oh, have. Oh, the, there's lots of drums and things. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite a nice introduction to the space. But yeah, I guess Christy is kind of like his squeeze in the arena, forgetting like the girl he left in the anvil. Mm-hmm. I mean, they fortunately don't have to fight each other. She actually just gets one fight when she becomes sort of like a damsel in distress, doesn't she? Yeah. It's a bit disappointing. No, for sure. We're introduced to the other fighters. I mean, there are other fighters in this tournament. And we get introduced to them all in this sort of like locker room, which looks like a like a sexy calendar. <laughs> and um, lots of close-ups of like um, abs and, you know, sports bras and what what is contained inside them. <laughs> I think this is also when Kazuya is doing that DNA test. And it takes such a short amount of time to do this test. It takes like two seconds. It really made me think, why doesn't he just do that with all the contestants? I mean, also, isn't there only eight competitors in this tournament? And it lasts like three days. They could do this whole tournament in a day, surely. Yeah, but the ratings, the money, the audience, the crowd. Why do they care about the ratings, actually? That's a point. You said earlier he was like, the ratings are through the roof but i mean why do they care if people are watching <laughs> we never see any advertising we never see any sort of transaction regarding i mean everyone's just watching tv and yes you could say this is as i mentioned earlier bread and circuses this keeps you off the real real problems but they don't really present that in any meaningful way at all i think this film would have benefited if we had seen the CEOs of the other massive companies because I always, my mind turns to Casino Royale which was like a, a Bond film with a Bond villain who was very worried about what was going to happen to him if his plan doesn't succeed and it'll be really interesting to have like either Kazuya or um, Hihachi saying we better win this tournament otherwise this corporation is going to take us over or something Silly like that. I'm not even sure that the other heads of corporations are even present to watch their fighters in the tournament. We don't get an idea of it. We have a special private viewing box for the heads of Tekken, but where's everyone else? It'd be funny if Tekken is, is effectively North Korea and it's thinking that everything is so important, like the, the, the result of this tournament changes the world. And meanwhile, like in France, everyone's just carrying on. <laughs> it's like the americans um and they're in the super bowl like no no one really cares apart from america sorry to our american listeners but i don't care well just going back to kazia's dna test on gin where it seems to be just like a close-up of a device scanning his abs in very hmm. erotic detail <laughs> i recognize those abs <laughs> yeah, and it turns out uh, Jin is 100% that bitch. He's a confirmed hottie. <laughs> or at least it confirms that Jin is Kazuya's son. Either that or Kazuya accidentally put his own DNA in the machine. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> can you imagine, like, put, sorry, I put the blood where? Okay. And then he puts his own blood in. He's like, oh my god, I'm my own son. <laughs> <laughs> Were you aware of the of this sort of relationship between the characters? Because like I said, I knew because it was the most obvious thing that uh, Kazuya would be like 
Jin's dad. Again, apart from the fact he would be four years old when he would have had Jin. <laughs> but players of the games, they would have known this already. And so I wonder if there's any sort of like dramatic tension with that knowledge. I mean, I knew again that it was all like Mishima family clan stuff. I didn't know the specifics of the characters and their relationships in this story specifically, but it's kind of, you know, where it's going. Not necessarily how it gets there, but you sort of know the little beats of the destination. But this kind of spurs Kazuya into action, and that's when he begins his coup against Heihachi, and saying that the only thing audiences crave more than blood is death, and he reveals that Jin is the byproduct of one of his indiscretions, and Heihachi Mishima is like, you have a son? And is like, I had a son. Ooh. And this is all taking place during the matchup between Jin and Yoshimitsu. And Heihachi causes a distraction which allows Jin to crush Yoshimitsu's head. And all the tournament fighters all get rounded up and put into a jail. The idea of fights to the death is such a staple of these sort of films that I really didn't realise there wasn't already fights to the death. Well, at the start of the movie, in the opening narration, the narrator, who is Jen talking, says, Once a year they hosted a tournament which was no game, because it's a video game, mm. kill or be killed. But that mm. doesn't become a rule until later on. I know he's talking, referring to stuff in the past, because he's talking about this is where it all started. But, you know, you kind of set up for a kill or be killed tournament, and then it's not. And then it's a reveal that now from, from now on it's kill or be killed. Oh, okay. I thought that was a little bit how it was the whole time. One of the competitors has a sword. Like, what was he going to do with that sword? It hits you with the blunt end. But also in terms of Yoshimitsu, the current reigning champion of Iron Fist is this guy called Brian Fury, who is revealed to have bio-enhancements and is claimed to be half-robot, but this is all like a secret and Kazuya knows, and if he doesn't do his bidding in terms of eliminating Jin then he'll, like, kick him out of a tournament and disqualify him. But Yoshimitsu's wearing full-on metal armour. Why is wearing armour underneath your skin, like, bad, but wearing it outside like a big exoskeleton is like, ah, whatever. I mean, the Jin and Yoshimitsu fight, when it began, I was thinking, this is going to be really unfair because Yoshimitsu has a sword and Jin doesn't. Then Jin is handed a weapon. And then they fight each other, and I was still thinking... Well, again, one is trained with using his sword all the flipping time. And I think Jin has never, ever used this weapon in his life. And furthermore, Jin is completely naked from the waist up. And Yoshimitsu, as you're right, has loads of armour. Ah, but Jin does have one thing. After Jin and Christy had their night on the town, they were attacked by the Williams sisters, who were planning to assassinate Jin per Kazuya's orders. And in the scuffle... Jin damages his hands. They get all kind of messed up because of broken glass. And so in order to protect his mm. hands, Steve hands him power gloves. Hey, how you feeling? Okay. Jin, the people's choice! Let me see. I have something for you. My old power gloves. 
well. It's been a long time. A little worse for wear now. Yeah. Gonna keep these safe. When you're out there today, you stay smart, okay? You gotta bob, you gotta weave, you gotta fly if you have to. But you don't let Yoshimitu touch you. Take care. Nice. Uh-huh. Recycle the challenger selection. What are you doing? This match is better suited for the semi-final. You have to fight now. Are you questioning me? No, I'm replacing you. Jazz! What are you doing? Stand up! You put me in charge of security, remember, Father? The jackhammers answer to me. Kajun, do not do this. It's done. I'm through waiting. Tekken is mine. Maintain the original fight selection. Yeah, this blew my mind a little bit. <laughs> They're so bad. It's, he's got two of them, though. So it's pretty impressive. And then as he's handed the power gloves, the music swells, and this is the moment I knew Luke Goss was going to die. Although I thought he was going to be like in the crowds, you know, Yoshimitsu's sword was going to fly into the audience and just hit him in the neck or something. <laughs> that would probably have been like a, a better ending. Yeah, he's just kind of shot. There's a lot of gunfire in this film. But again, it's so weird. In a, in a quote-unquote martial arts movie, if the martial arts is bad, I would still be fairly entertained if there's some good gunplay. But again, the gunplay is, is kind of crap. It's so bizarre, though, when Jin is attacked by the Williams sisters in like where it's completely black with strobe lighting flash and they're both wearing balaclavas he still recognizes nina williams's eyes later on even though at the time he was being beaten about the face in the dark by a balaclava to nina he's he's got good eyesight you know <laughs> got, you know, that's a good point about Jin. kazuya wants everyone to fight to the death for the ratings but i still always feel in these sort of films where that fights to the death seem sort of unsustainable because you will eventually run out of people. <laughs> eventually. You kill all your like higher tier fighters and then like the average fighters, then it's just a load of people who can't fight so I go out of a wet paper bag fighting. Yeah, that's gonna do really well for the ratings when everyone's dead. The big fight ends, and um I had to rewind a little bit because I missed the part when Jin and everyone is captured by the feds. And it's because they are caught 0.5 seconds after Luke Goff says, we got to get out of here. They sort of turn a corner and then all the police are there. And he's like, oh. <laughs> so they're put in cages, but not for a cage match, just to be arrested. Yeah, uh, that, that's when Kazia lays down the new kill or be killed ruling. And Jin sort of convinces everyone 
that, hey, this isn't such a good idea. So they decide to stage a prison breakout. And at the same time, they break out Heihachi, who has also been imprisoned. Um, and they head to a, a safe house uh, where Jin and Heihachi have a sort of tete-a-tete. And Heihachi's like, I knew your mother. She was one of Tekken's best. Do not judge all of Tekken by Kazuya's mistakes. Tekken is peace. And Jin's like, no, it ain't. Tekken's mm. fear. But it's sort of like, you know, this is where Heihachi sort of explains what happened and, and says, like, I saved your mother's life. She was beaten, violated by Kazuya, and so I was the one who took her from Tekken City. And until today, there was only one heir to the Tekken throne. Now, there are two. Sort of positioning Jin as being, you know, the rightful heir because Kazuya's like a psycho. But it's like the whole sort of Kazuya, Jin, Jun relationship. Like, we talk a lot about video game movie villains, but I think Kazuya's just, like, a real wrong'un. <laughs> he basically orders the death of his father. He tries later on to kill his son. He blows up soldiers that work for him, like it's no big deal. And he's just, like, also, like, raped Jin's mother. And, you know, he just, like, a kind of really sleazy, violent, nasty piece of work. And... I guess it's a good performance in that respect because I really find him not a very nice person. <laughs> but doesn't make for necessarily like an entertaining villain. But he does a lot of charity work. <laughs> you know. Later on when he does force Jin to fight Brian Fury in the tournament, he's kind of like, if I knew that whore was pregnant, I would have killed her right then and there. Imagine what I'll do to her, Christy if you don't fight. It's just like, ugh. Like, we get to a point when Kazuya is now the CEO of Tekken, but rather than just killing Jin with assassins, like he's already attempted once before, he still gets Jin to fight in the tournament for the ratings. And I just think, you know, if you really want Jin out of the way, why not just say he fell down some stairs? <laughs> There's a lot of stairs in the tower you live in, I'm sure. Jen died on the way back to his home planet. Exactly. <laughs> like speaking of bad planning, this Brian guy with the cybernetics, it's established that the cybernetics are illegal, but he's not doing a very good job of hiding cybernetics. He's, he's often found destroying things with his bare hands, like concrete blocks. And also when he's punched in a the chest, there's like sparkles. And he's also got the most wonderful silvery hair. So it's like really bring people's attention to the fact that he might not be 100% human. Yeah, what ordinary person gets kicked in the head and just stands there smiling and there being a big metal clang when it happens? Yeah, they, they miss the opportunity to kick him in the nuts and it goes dong, because I never get tired of that. Yeah, the way Jin defeats him finally is by climbing all the way to the top of this ancient ruins prop stage <laughs> setting. <laughs> And then just, like, jumps from up on high and knees him in the head, breaking his neck. And it kind of made me think, mm. oh, I wish I was watching Ong back right now. That prop does just remind me of Chessington World of Adventures or something. <laughs> I'm just trying to think when... So he defeats Brian and then uh, Kazuya is like, okay, fine, I've had enough of this. And he decides to challenge Jin for the final battle. 
And the PA says fighting for the honour of the Tekken Corporation. And I'm just like, again, honour? What does this corporation actually do other than fighting? Like with baby food or clothes irons? <laughs> I mean, like Tekken brand ironing balls, like King of Creases? I don't know. It's like they don't even bother to do like products with the Tekken logo on it. There's that, you know, if they had like Tekken soft drinks and Tekken t-shirts and things, I just needed more input about how this whole thing works. But the idea is that Tekken as a corporation then has replaced nation status. So they have like mm. Tekken dollars, etc. So effectively, everything's Tekken. It's like you don't need a Tekken lunchbox or a Tekken backpack. It's just Tekken by virtue of being made in Tekken. I suppose, again, I had to keep reminding myself this is like a country. Yeah, it doesn't do a very good job of it. No, I, was, I just was more interested in what was happening beyond the film than what was happening in the film because, like I said, the, these characters just sadly don't really hold my interest apart from Hihachi, and that's purely because of his... Uh, he's so enigmatically played. Though actually also, he is one of the few... I think he's one of the few characters where your perception of them changes because you think he's the he's an ultimate dick, and he's still like the like corrupt. Hmm. I was going to say corrupt head of the organization, but he's not really corrupt. He's just maybe distant and doesn't think about the little people. He doesn't seem to be doing enough for the little people. But yeah, he is the only character who goes through any sort of change in audience perception, and and everyone else is just the same, I suppose. Yeah. You could argue that maybe Jin changes at the start when he only cares about what's happening in the world around him when it directly affects him, which is again, sort of maybe distressingly truthful, <laughs> but uh, I think that's giving the film too much credit. Yeah. Because at the start, when he's arguing with his girlfriend, she sort of says, Oh, I know how you're feeling when, you know, his mum died. My father died in a jackhammer raid. And then he says, and what has anyone done for it? Nothing. And it's just like, oh, geez. I mean, she was just trying to sympathize you on some level. And it's just like, well, I'm going to take matters into my own hands because it's directly affected me now. Yeah. He's very hard to sympathize with, I found. And he's just not very, he's not a very um, engaging actor. Is the world a better place because Jin won the tournament? I'm going to say, really don't think so. <laughs> I mean, maybe there'll be less raids. Maybe. But the last line of the film, the narrator, rather implies that maybe he takes a long weekend and he no change for the good people of Anvil. Yeah. So we have our final matchup. I like how Kazuya says, introduce me to the final match. Let me just grab my little axes first. <laughs> they are dinky little axes. They're very adorable. He bought them on Amazon and he didn't realise how big they were. <laughs> Well, that was what we were thinking with the, the prop ancient ruin. Maybe it was like this is Spinal Tap and they, they ordered, <laughs> like, it was going to be a small ancient ruin and then it turned out really big and he was going to get some big axes and they turned out really small. See, again, I'd much more enjoy a film where Ka Kazuya is on customer support for his botched orders. <laughs> and he's like trying to hide he's trying to hide his incompetence from his dad because he knows if it's revealed if like a, a tiny package arrives on Hihachi's doorstep and he's like what's this and it's like oh it's the the ruins I ordered and he says but they're like 
50 centimeters across <laughs> he knows you know I don't, I don't i don't think you could run this organization if you can't flip and order stuff of amazon pr- correctly i think this film would have been improved 100 percent if there was just a tiny little scene maybe just like at the start of another scene uh earlier on where it's just kazuya on the phone and all you hear is him saying no i want these ads as bigger no that's too big <laughs> yes Oh, that's, again, I feel like a better film. But yes, they, they have this fight, the final fight. Yeah, Tazia is saying, like, you know, you have the curse of the Mishima blood, like Father Light Sun, and in the ensuing conflict, Jin manages to grab one of his little axes and slices him in the belly, and it says, it's your curse, not mine. Stops himself from killing Kazuya and leaves him to live out his days in the post credit sequence ambling around this prison cell, possibly, maybe. After slicing Kazuma's belly, he turns to the camera and goes, character growth. I didn't kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I actually wanted him to say, it's time we start cutting overheads. And Kazuma goes, that, that doesn't make sense. You got my tummy, not my <laughs> head. <laughs> I don't like to judge people on things they like i do my best i mean you know we've covered a lot of films on this podcast where even if i don't enjoy them i feel that maybe somebody might but i kind of feel that if this film is one of your favorite films you are a cretin (laughs) and i kind of feel that everyone should be forced to watch this film as some sort of IQ test. The lights go up and then you're asked if you enjoyed it. So um, what did you think of this, Rory? I think the problem with Tekken stems back to what we were saying in terms of how it sort of plays around with a future dystopia setting style movie and a martial arts tournament movie which are both very sort of familiar setups when it comes to B-movies and straight-to-DVD movies. But um, while combining the two makes it stand out, it doesn't necessarily make for a better movie. Neither of the parts of the film that we see here, while fairly well integrated, are particularly interesting. And when we're looking at our fighting game movie adaptations, we're talking the creme de la creme. We're talking Street Fighter. (laughs) We're talking Mortal Kombat. We're talking DOA, Dead or Alive. We've had more appreciation, I think, of those films doing this podcast, especially Street Fighter, because as we know, it's not really a fighting film. It's not really a martial arts film. But, you know, it's got other things to compensate. It's got an entertaining larger-than-life characters in there. This doesn't. And I think this film has elements of all three of those. I think it has the kind of silly costumes of DOA. It has the martial arts tournament structure and Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa of Mortal Kombat. And it has this kind of you know, war and soldiers style thing, which you see in Street Fighter, but it doesn't have any of the energy or fun. It takes itself far too seriously for what's happening. And it just needed a bit of spark. It just needed someone who could just inject some humor or inject some energy into the fights, but also just the dialogue and the way it looks. It's just pretty humdrum. 
this might be a silly question considering we're getting towards the end of this episode but are the games set in this sort of post-terror wars dystopia because i've got images of fights and beaches and things i'm not 100 percent sure because tekken 1 and 2 they're sort of set a couple of years apart i think whereas tekken 3 is like a 20 year jump and i think this oh, game takes its sort of cues from tekken 3 mainly maybe a bit of tekken 4 it's all a bit of a mishmash so i've I think there is stuff like future tech and there's robots and cyber enhancements and biotech and all that kind of stuff in the Tekken games, as well as weird devil and ogre stuff. So, I, I, I mean, I never thought of those games as being set in a sort of future dystopia, but maybe it kind of is. But it's definitely far more foregrounded here. You could very easily ignore it in, in the games, at least the original playstation trilogy which are the ones i'm most familiar with but it all makes me think of that line number two says in austin powers where it's like there aren't any countries anymore it's corporations (laughs) it's truly ahead of its time (laughs) maybe this film would have made more sense if they actually got corporate sponsorship and it was like mcdonald's versus starbucks then i maybe would pay attention I'm going to write my new Tekken fan fiction, but I'm going to replace Tekken and these other corporations with fast food joints and Amazon and Apple and all these other companies for shits and giggles. That'll be the title. Now, this film, though, it's it did generate a sequel, which we'll do at some point, which I believe is a prequel, isn't it? Yes. And it's called Kazuya's Revenge. And it seems that the Kazuya character is the main protagonist. And I'm sort of like, I don't know how that's going to work in terms of retconning him to make him nice or likable. All I know is that Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa reprises his role, as does Gary Daniels, who plays Brian Fury. So that's something to look forward to. Oh, I hope he's much more of a robot. Like he's got more, he's got more basic robotics. He's a cross <laughs> between like Terminator and C-3PO. And um, <laughs> that would be quite fun. It's funny though, though I've, I absolutely did not enjoy this film. I have said I would not recommend it, sadly. I am always open-minded enough for a sequel because I have a, I doubt it's the same. It's not the same director, is it? So maybe a different creative team will bring something a bit new. But then again, I had heard about this film. I had not heard about Tekken 2 until like a short while ago today. So um, <laughs> we shall see, I suppose. And yes, there's also Tekken the Motion Picture, which was a sort of anime, original video animation from 1998, which perhaps skews closer to the games. But that's something we may look at on another episode. But speaking of other Tekken adaptations, did you come across a title by The Avenging Fist? No. Well, I mentioned in the Lara Croft Tomb Raider The Cradle of Life episode a film which uh, starred Simon Yam, who was in that film, uh, called Future Cops, which was a sort of weird kung fu comedy which did a parody of Street Fighter and Street Fighter characters. Well... The same producer of that film also produced a film in 2001 called The Avenging Fist, which was co-directed by Corey Yun, who directed The Transporter and DOA Dead or Alive, Mm -hmm. and also co-directed by Andrew Lau, who would go on to co-direct the Infernal Affairs trilogy, later 
adapted into Martin Scorsese's The Departed. But I had a look at the trailer and The Avenging Fist started out as an unofficial Tekken movie until Namco's lawyers came along and clamped down on the film, basically saying, uh, you can't make a Tekken movie because you don't have the rights. But the trailer for the film is worth watching. I, I hear the film itself is is no great shapes. Maybe it's better than the Tekken that we watched. But it features lookalikes of Tekken characters Jin and Horang. It's sort of set in a kind of future dystopia, but more Fifth Element inspired, I would say. Cool. And it also features Sammo Hung with a metal fedora, of all things. <laughs> And uh, has lots of CG, lots of like ridiculous looking fights, and it focuses on a power glove as the main MacGuffin that everyone's wow. fighting over. I feel like we should do a power glove trilogy. <laughs> so I, I certainly recommend at least checking out the trailer because it does look pretty wackadoodle. <laughs> so it seems things could possibly only get better <laughs> I say possibly <laughs> could only get better um, for Tekken in the future of this podcast but what is the very next episode of Games of Film going to be about? We are approaching the 10th anniversary of the release of Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim vs. The World so I think that's going to be our next episode of the podcast. 10 years good god it seems like 10 years since we started talking about Tekken so <laughs> <laughs> might feel like 20 years by the time we get to Scott Pilgrim but yes um, another cult classic one inspired by video games so we'll be talking about that next time but in the meantime how can people keep in touch with the podcast you can find information about the podcast on our website gamesonfilm.witsite.com podcast where you can also find links to ways you can support the show as well as all the episodes which are also available on soundcloud as well as your various podcast suppliers such as spotify apple podcasts and acast you can also follow games on film on social media we're on twitter facebook and instagram at games on film pod and you can contact us games on film pod at gmail.com i myself are on twitter at rory steel i'm at only man who can and the music for Games on Film was composed by David Lightfoot. <laughs> David Lightfoot, does he have nice toes? I might just not use that. <laughs> Twinkle toes. Twinkle toes Lightfoot. <laughs> well, uh, as always, it's been a pleasure to discuss the movie, even if the movie is not everything I could hope it to be. But... Like I said, this is a podcast where we celebrate video game movies. So hopefully we'll be celebrating Scott Pilgrim when we both watch it again. Thanks very much for listening. I've been Harry. I've been Rory. Take care. Bye bye.